And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. As I promised, I'm reaching back from time to time for some of my favorite episodes that I hope will provide a little relief from the grinding news of the day. Today, I want to share a conversation I had in 2016 with Steve Kerr, the splendid coach of the Golden State Warriors. Steve has eight championship rings as an NBA player and coach. Three came on those immortal Chicago Bulls teams with Michael Jordan that is being featured in the current ESPN documentary series, The Last Dance. But even if you don't enjoy sports, I think you'll enjoy this conversation because Steve is so much more than a great athlete and coach. Raised in part in the Middle East, he lost lost his father to assassination in Lebanon and is one of the most thoughtful, interesting people I've had a chance to sit down with. So I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. I read a column that some columnist wrote in October saying Steve Kerr should run for president of the United (laughs) States. And I was thinking about the negative ad, you know, Steve Kerr, born in Lebanon, raised among Muslims in Egypt. (laughs) Is he really an American? (laughs) Right, right. And so on. Um, But I don't think most people know about your journey and where and, and how you grew up. And maybe you could just talk a little bit about that. Sure, yeah. Um, Yeah, I've been incredibly lucky in my life uh, to to live the way I have, to, to grow up in the family that I, that I grew up in. Uh, as you said, born in Beirut, my dad was teaching at the American University in Beirut at the time, and um, he was a Middle East uh, political science professor, ultimately took a job at UCLA, uh, and we moved there when I was just a year or two old and, and spent most of my childhood in, in Los Angeles. Um, but my dad would take sabbaticals, so we spent time in in France, Tunisia, uh, three years in Egypt. And while we were living overseas, we would travel as well in the summertime. So I really you know, got, got my education from traveling around the world, living in different cultures, and there's probably no, no better education than that. So, pretty, What, what uh, did you learn from it? What did you learn about those countries and cultures, and what did you learn about ours? Well, it was interesting because uh, Cairo was the biggest influence on me because I was uh, junior high, high school age, um, and that was late 70s. Um, Americans were beloved in Egypt. I couldn't walk down the street in Cairo without somebody rubbing my blonde hair <laughs> and smiling. And, and uh, But we were, um, we were a group of Americans uh, that were there with kids from all over the world. I went to an American school. Uh, CAC uh, was the name of it, Cairo American College. It was in the, the outskirts of Cairo in a, a suburb called Mahdi. And uh, I had friends from literally all, all over the world. The American kids were mostly oil companies, uh, diplomats, kids, or uh, academics like my uh, mom and dad. And uh, But we met kids from everywhere. We interacted uh, with them. A lot of different languages were spoke, spoken at the school. Um, I, I actually learned Arabic uh, halfway decently. I could get around. Did you? Um, and, you know, we would do all kinds of incredible stuff that nobody else would have had the chance to do. Would, um, and how much contact did you have with, uh, with Egyptians when you, were, when you were there? Lots, because uh, there was a big Egyptian popu- population at the school. And the sports teams that I played on, uh, we would play against Egyptian schools and club teams. And uh, You were a basketball player from an early age? 
Yeah, I played everything growing up. Back then, everybody, you know, you just played whatever sport was in season. Mm-hmm. And now it's so different. You, you play the same sport year-round. But So I played some soccer and baseball and football and basketball. But basketball was always my favorite, and I, I really um, – Fell in love with it at UCLA when my dad was a professor. Not a bad there. spot for it. Not bad. Uh, yeah. John Wooden, heyday. You know, I, my earliest memory of a UCLA game was when Bill Walton was playing there. Yeah. It was 1972, I believe. They played uh, – they were number one in the country. Every game was electric, sold out. Um, every, the student section was incredible. The band, it was, yeah. it was heaven. I walked in the first time and I couldn't <laughs> believe. And I fell in love with it. And I'll never forget, uh, I don't remember anything about the game except for walking out with my dad, and UCLA had beaten Maryland. Maryland was number two in the country with John Lucas. Um, they had uh, Len, Len Elmore. Elmore yeah. yep. um, they had another another guy, Tom McMillan maybe? No, no McMillan was at Columbia. His, he went to Columbia. Okay, yeah. They had another guy who played in the NBA. Anyway, um, UCLA fans were so spoiled. They had won seven straight national titles. And I walk out, and UCLA had won by like two points. And I'm walking with my dad, and the, the, the guy next to me says, what is wrong with our team? And the guy next to him says, I don't know. We're not like we were last year. And, and he, he starts ripping into Walton or for doing that. And I turn to my dad. I said, Dad, we won. <laughs> he goes, yeah, but the expectations are, are a little higher than that. Probably a pretty good lesson for winning 73 games yeah. and not winning the championship. Yeah. And I'm sure yeah. there were people who were saying the Saying the same thing. For but, sure. That's, yeah. part, that's part of it. But those are good problems to have. Yeah, high-class yeah. problems. Yeah. You know, when I was a, uh, when I was a ki- uh, student at the University of Chicago, my roommate uh, went to Providence College when Marvin Barnes and Ernie oh, yeah. DiGregorio were there. And they were in the Final Four, and his parents had a relationship with uh, Providence, and they gave us these tickets uh, to go to the Final Four. And we hitchhiked down from Chicago to games at the Checker Dome in St. Louis, yeah, which was sure. this old barn. Yeah. And in that final game, Bill Walton, that was a game where he had against, I guess, Memphis State, Larry Keenan and those yep. guys, yep. 21 of 22 yeah. he, he hit. Yeah. And it was maybe the most per- – I mean, I watched Michael Jordan for 13 years yeah. in Chicago. Yeah. That was maybe the most perfect game I'd ever seen anybody yeah. play. He had a lot, bunch of assists. Yeah. His baskets were mostly jump shots and bank shots. He not, couldn't dunk. He couldn't, couldn't dunk, dunk yeah. back then. So he had to lay it in. I remember watching the game on TV. Yeah. I th- was, it, was, it, was that 72? 73. 70, 73. Yeah. So I was, you know, seven, eight years old. And, but that was the reason I fell in love with basketball was growing up in that environment. And then my parents would send me to John Wooden basketball camp in the, yeah. in the summer and uh, just absolutely fell in love with it. And what, what an era to, to grow up, up yeah. in as a, as a sports fan. Walton was on this podcast and uh, talked about stealing uh, – not stealing, but he wouldn't – told him you can't be involved in anti-war sit-ins. Just write a letter and express yourself on this. So he went down to the coach's office and got a sheet of paper – with wooden, it was wooden stationery. The secretary gave it to him, and he wrote a letter calling Nixon a war criminal and asking him to resign on John Wooden stationery, <laughs> uh, and got all the other players to sign it. Yeah. And uh, Wooden was not amused by. So he uh, said, "Forget the letter. Why don't you go out to Wilshire <laughs> Boulevard?" And I, I remember the scene uh, of of Walton sitting on Wilshire Boulevard, um, yelling at uh, Chuck Young, the Chancellor of UCLA. And uh, it was there was a great documentary on HBO, probably ten, twelve years ago, it was about the UCLA dynasty, and it dealt a lot with that Vietnam era and the, the protest and the, the dichotomy that wouldn't 
presented as this iconic figure, kind of cut straight out of the 50s. Yes. Um, and with this incredibly virtuous way, coaching this group of players in the midst of the Vietnam War who were kind of, you know, trying to figure out how the world worked. And, and Wooden was just an amazing figure for so many reasons, but I highly recommend that, that documentary. Well, what's extraordinary is everybody loved I mean, his players revered him. Yeah. I mean, Bill Walton was the ultimate renegade. Right. And he revered John Wooden till the day John yeah. Wooden died. Yeah. So he still talks about him reverentially. Yeah. So um, I want to get. I want to talk a little more about um, politics and sports. But I I, I just want to return to your years overseas um, mm. and ask you. Um, I mean, there are two ways it works. One is you you get an appreciation for other cultures, mm-hmm. but you also get a, an appreciation for other how other cultures see the United States. Yeah, yeah. And so I guess I'm interested in that angle as mm-hmm, well. Mm-hmm. What, what did you learn about America living overseas? Well, I saw poverty up close. I mean, we, we lived in a, in a nice suburb, but everywhere you, you went in Cairo at the time, you'd see poor people living on the streets. Um, there was an entire community. Um, I'm trying to remember the name of the suburb of Cairo that basically uh, it's called the City of, of the Dead because it was people who lived basically in this cemetery and underneath these mausoleums. And and we saw this every day and we'd see beggars, you know, asking for bakshish, you know, that was the word, um, you know, for, for you know, do you, can, you ha- can I have some money? Can I have something? We saw this every single day and it, and it struck me because, you know, growing up in Pacific Palisades in Los Angeles, you know, going to UCLA uh, campus for basketball games. I, I didn't see any of that. I did, you know, I was, I was a, you know, middle-class kid growing up in a wonderful environment. So I saw poverty. Um, a lot of people see it in, in our country, but I never saw it in our country. I saw it there. But I also saw a totally different way of life. I saw kids playing soccer on the street with two, uh, two rocks as the goal and a bundled-up rag for a ball. Um, but I saw, um, I saw people, as I said, from all over the world, people were so nice to us. Um, Americans, as I said, were, were beloved. And my parents had this really eclectic group of friends. So we had barbecues all the time, people from all over the world. And it just, it it taught me about other cultures. It taught me about compassion and, and understanding that, you know, everybody grows up in a different environment. We all see the world differently. And so it, it, I think it made me more compassionate and it also made me appreciate our own country for not only the, the comforts of the freedom that we lived in, but just for the joy that we were allowed every day. A lot of, you know, most people don't grow up with great joy in their lives. They're just struggling to survive. And that's, uh, that struck me pretty hard at a young age. You, um, your dad went back to Lebanon uh, to become president of uh, of the American University uh, in Beirut, and uh, and had and had a tra- tragic end uh, there. Um, talk about that, and, and what happened, and how did you find mm-hmm. out about it? Well, he why was, did he go uh, back? By the way, well, his he grew up in Lebanon. Uh, his parents were missionaries after World War One. They uh, went to uh, Turkey and Armenia. They helped uh, with a, uh, a uh, Armenian orphanage, and they they were relief workers. And uh, during the Turkish Armenian uh, Holocaust, and um, 
you know, once the war ended, uh, they were they traveled. They ended up in Beirut. Um, I think actually, I think the, some of the orphanages that they helped were in Lebanon uh, across the border, and and so they fell in love with Lebanon and and settled there. Then they became um, employees at the American University. Uh, my grandfather was a chemistry professor. My grandmother was the dean of women, and they raised their family there. So my dad was born and raised in Beirut. Um, went to boarding school on the, on the East Coast, Deerfield, and went to Princeton, and um, but went back to AUB where he met my mom. My mom was on her junior year abroad from Occidental College, and that's where they met. And and um, so it's a, an incredible story. Um, but his dream job, once he became a professor at UCLA, his dream job was always to go back and be the president of the American University in Beirut. So. When he finally had the opportunity, um, he took it despite uh, It was at a very tumultuous time. It was, yeah. Um, and for the most part, you know, up until that time, the university had been kind of an oasis. Um, there had been uh, problems at the embassy and, at, you know, with um, any, any military presence. You know, you, there was a lot of fear at the time. But the university up until the early 80s had been pretty much left alone. Um, but just before – and as he took the job, his predecessor uh, was kidnapped. Um, and so, you know, he had already taken the job. He didn't want to back out. He spent the first, I think, nine months or so on the job in New York while the political uh, circumstances quieted down. And then he ultimately went there. And I, I was there with him uh, and my mom and my younger brother. My younger brother was a freshman in high school, so he went to live with them. I was heading off to University of Arizona as a freshman. And so I went to stay there for about a week and to see the campus. And and uh, that would have been in August of 83. And, uh, and he was assassinated in January of 84. So he was only on campus for, you know, four months. Was he... Uh, was he worried? Was he frightened going back? He was. You know, my sister tells a story about, um, you know, spending a night with my dad in a hotel in New York before he went over there, and he expressed his fear to her. He didn't say much to the rest of us. And I think also we had— She's older. She's older, mm-hmm. yeah. And we had um, that typical sort of um, insulation when nothing bad has ever happened to you. You think, ah, oh, it's not going to happen to me. It's not going to happen to us. And uh, so we had some of that, I think. And my dad was beloved in the Middle East. He spoke fluent Arabic. He was uh, a champion uh, for, um, you know, the Palestinian cause. Um, if anything, we were a little more worried about, uh, you know, right-wing uh, Israeli politics than, than anything going on in, in Lebanon. Um, our, uh, I remember when I was about in eighth grade, our, our car in Pacific Palisades uh, firebombed by a, uh, a right-wing uh, zealot uh, uh, with the Jewish Defense League. So we had had an experience with of fear, but it just, you know, it wasn't something that caused us to say, you know, boy, this is, you know, this is really dangerous. It was more like, eh, I think we think he'll be okay. He thought he was going to be okay. Um, again, he grew up there. He spoke fluent Arabic. Was he, he a, a target simply because— he was an American. I mean, this was yeah. two years after the uh, the uh, Marine barracks was. Uh, I don't even think it was two years after. I think it was two months after. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I think that happened in October of '83. Could be. Yes. Yeah. That and could the be right, and yeah. the embassy had been bombed somewhere in that time as well. 
And so all this stuff was now going on around the city. And, yeah, we were absolutely concerned. But when he first took the job, we we were sort of probably disillusioned. Was your mom over there with him? She went with him um, when uh, when he left, when he took over – on campus for good, which was August of 83. So she, my mom, my younger brother, and I all went. I stayed for about a week uh, just to, to visit, and then I went off to to college. And that, that was a story in and of itself. It took me three days to get out of the country because of shelling and, and uh, that was going on during the Civil War. I mean, you, you look back on it and you go, my God, what the hell were we doing there, you know? And it's uh, – but it's it's hard to explain. But at the time, I think my dad felt – relatively safe and insulated because of his experience there, because of how many friends uh, he had in the community, and because he was part of the university, which, as I said, was you know, educating you know, thousands of prominent uh, Arabs from all over the Middle East. And um, so we, we, felt, we felt like he was somewhat safe, and obviously he wasn't. You got a call uh, mm-hmm. at – at school, I got a call uh, January uh, January eighteenth. Um, a friend who worked at the university, a man named Vahi Simonian, uh, good Armenian name. Our our family has this incredible Armenian connection because of the work my grandparents did. I still have Armenian people come up to me that, to this day all over the country and say thank you for your grandparents' work. It's really a source of pride for our family, but. Uh, Mr. Simonian worked at the university, a good family friend, and he called me uh, in the middle of the night. It was like 3 o'clock in the morning in my dorm and gave me the news. And, I mean, this is, I don't mean to it, – it's got to be a, pain, a very painful memory. Um, were you surprised when you heard the news or was it yeah. – So you, you really didn't ex- – you knew that he was vulnerable, but you had this sense that it would be okay. I had a sense that it was going to be okay. Um, you know, but I, again, you look back on it, uh, the, the Marine barracks were bombed in October, two, three months before. I think over 300 Marines were killed. It was right. devastating. Um, the embassy had been bombed. Um, so there was danger, but again, there's that sort of innocent – sort of shield of protection that we all kind of think we have until something horrible happens and then you realize, oh, my God, um, and it's too late. Um, but it was, a, it was a really difficult situation. My dad wanted to be there. It was his dream job. He, he wanted to help people there. He loved that university. Um, and uh, he was in heaven while he was doing his job, but it only lasted – a few months. And were you, were you were 18, 19? I was 18, 18. freshman. Yeah. And you guys, he was, I read somewhere that he was very much your counselor on the whole basketball thing, where to go to school. He was like an advocate yeah, for you. he was. I didn't have, I only had two scholarship offers out of high school and both came late in the summer at the last second. It was Arizona and Cal State Fullerton. And, and he helped me um, because Arizona kind of stopped calling me, and I thought they had pulled the scholarship. I didn't even know if they were going to offer one. Actually. Lute Olson, the cla- yeah. classic great college basketball yeah. coach, was the coach at the he, beca- he was just in his first year, and the program was in shambles, and he had an extra scholarship. And he kind of – he saw me play in a summer league in L.A. late that summer, and, and he kind of offered me a scholarship at the last second. But there was some confusion, and my dad kind of stepped in and called everybody – uh, on both sides and, you know, wanted to get the lay of the land. And, and he asked me where I wanted to go. And I said, it's not even close. I want to go to Arizona. And uh, so he called Lute directly and said, 
what's going on? Do you, get, do you have a scholarship or not? We're kind of confused. And Lute said, oh, yeah, we do. And I think Lute may have been considering somebody else because I really wasn't – honestly, I was not that good. This is not false modesty. I was, I was a, a kind of a late bloomer. Um, but uh, he helped kind of facilitate it, and I ended up getting the scholarship at the last second. And he came and visited me on campus um, in October – uh, maybe it was early November. We were practicing and scrimmaging and stuff, and he spent spent a couple nights in my dorm with me. And so it was nice to at least have him there. He never saw me play a game, but he he got to visit me on campus. And, and was, you know, I I lost my my own father suddenly when I was a sophomore in college. Mm-hmm. And um, the thing that um, st- struck the thing that was hardest for me was not having an opportunity to sort of say goodbye and express yeah. those things that. You know, you kind of take for for mm-hmm. granted, but I mm-hmm. also I also kind of felt all of a sudden like that was a line of demarcation between uh, being a kid and, yeah. and growing up. Yeah, for sure, I felt that way too. Um, and and there was there were lots of things that I thought about uh, afterwards. You know, I didn't give him a hug when I when he left. Yeah. You know, and and he, he I remember he left my dorm room and. In, in typical Kerr fashion, he left two of his suits in my closet. <laughs> <laughs> it runs in the family. I leave stuff all the time now. Yeah. And, and he came back 15 minutes later, and, and that was the last time I saw him, and I didn't, didn't give him a hug, you know, and it bothers yeah. me to this day. I didn't, I didn't say goodbye. And, and I think about him all the time because what's happened in my career is so far-fetched. It really is. Like, I, you know, I was just hoping I could actually get in the rotation at Arizona and play, you know, maybe for a couple of years and – or earn some playing time and to end up having this career and not being able to share any of it with him, he would have, he would have just loved every second yeah. of it. And I would have loved sharing it with him. I, I can't tell you how much I identify with that, yeah. you know, because I think my dad who was an immigrant would have been stunned that I ended up working for the right. president of the United States. Right. So right. yeah, those are the, it, that that's the, the pain or not knowing your family and not knowing your kids. And yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. it's tough. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of The Axe Files. You've seen the Middle East kind of explode yeah. uh, recently. First of all, was it? Uh, I read somewhere that was a forerunner of Hezbollah that was suspected in your dad's assassination. Yeah, yeah. Um, Iranian ties. We actually um, ended up suing... The Iranian government um, it would have been about 2002 um, in Washington D.C. Um, they didn't, you know, nobody showed up from their side. It was more, as my brother called it, it was free therapy. You know, mm-hmm. we all got to get up on the stand and talk about how much it, you know, hurt us. But um, it was basically Hezbollah, and it was the the um, it was done because of he was the most prominent American in in the city, and he was he was killed only because of. Uh, his his uh, nationality being American, and it was ironic because uh, he had spent his whole life um, helping uh, Arabs uh, and and helping trying to foster peace in the Middle East, and that was his entire area of focus. But that may have been, in some ways, also an impetus because perhaps the most dangerous yeah. people were the ones who could build bridges. Sure, it was like Yitzhak Rabin, you right? Know, exactly, I mean, the single, yeah. sing, probably the single most. Since the, someone killed the Archduke Ferdinand, probably the, the yeah. most single most meaningful assassination uh, in the glo- on the globe was that of 
Yitzhak Rabin, right. and for just the same. Yeah, for uh, trying to foster trying to, peace. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. You, you mentioned your brother. Your brother. Your brother was in on the National Security Council. Uh, yeah. w- under the Clinton administration. Yeah. Yeah. Did he go what what led him to that career? I want to talk about all your successful siblings and ask <laughs> what what the heck happened to you. My but. mom will be thrilled. <laughs> Every time somebody asks my mom about me, she says, "Let me tell you about Steve's siblings." <laughs> She's very proud of all of us. Yeah, so, uh, well, and and deservedly so, well, but t- t- your your did your brother did some of these experiences lead your brother into uh, an interest in national security? Yeah, I think so. Um, he he went to the um, University of Arizona, and then he ended up at Thunderbird uh, Business School in Phoenix. And But he got a job. It was a you know a low-level job in in, uh, in the NSC. And uh, but he he was right there in the Situation Room, and he had he worked with a lot of people who were you know right in the mix. And and um, you know, President Clinton wouldn't have really recognized him but uh, i'll never forget when uh when we played the the bullets i was with the bulls would have been i think 96 we went to washington and president clinton came in our locker room and he was so prepped for every meeting he knew everything <laughs> about everybody so somebody in his prep team told him that my brother worked in the national security council and so he came up to my locker and he said, Steve, your brother Andrew's doing such a fine job for it. <laughs> my brother said he would have no idea who I was. Uh, but, but he was – Andrew was there for um, I think four or five years. I may be wrong on that. But it was great. Every time we'd come to town, he would take uh, our team on a tour of the White House. And back then, it was so easy to mm-hmm. walk through. You just walked through one metal detector. And Tony Kukoc, who a Croatian teammate in yes. Chicago, uh, one time we, we were standing in the Oval Office with my brother, about five of us on this tour. And he said, I cannot believe this. He said, in my home country, I couldn't even come within one block of the presidential palace. And, and uh, here I am standing in the president's office. And it was a great symbol of American freedom. Yeah, yeah. You, you, and you have a sister who's active in politics mm-hmm. in Britain. Yeah, in in England, her husband is a professor at Cambridge, and she's a local politician, um, and uh, kind of like a, what city council would be here. And, uh, and then my older brother is a professor at Michigan State uh, in agricultural economics, whatever that is. I always <laughs> I always tell him whatever that means. But he uh, he does a lot of work um, overseas. He travels everywhere. He 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 does research on. Uh, Third world agriculture uh, and and the economy and how to how uh, different cultures can help make the best use of their uh, resources and and if you ask me anything more about it I wouldn't I wouldn't yeah. know but he does a lot of important uh, stuff for yeah people. well that, it it's, it seems like it and with climate change and everything that's a that's yeah. becoming uh, even a more that's right significant and and uh, mm. important. Uh, uh, area to study. Uh, so, what would you have done? You you have this. I was a bull. I'm a bull season ticket holder. Have been for forty years. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I saw you hit a lot of shots, uh, and you have a preternatural three point shot. <laughs> Still, uh, are you the leader, or you're one of the leaders in the history of the NBA? Yeah, in terms of uh, percentage and. Uh and that's um, that was kind of my my game, and I played on a lot of great teams, so I got a lot of open shots. So yes. I was I was blessed playing with Michael and 
Scottie Pippen, Tim Duncan, David Robinson. I, I was blessed. And the, and the best thing for me was I played for Hall of Fame coaches. You know, I played for Lute Olson, Lenny Wilkins, um, Cotton Fitzsimmons, Popovich, Greg Popovich, mm-hmm. and Phil Jackson, who were really uh, two incredible mentors for me. Along with loot, and uh, so I, I, and you know, going to John Wooden basketball game. Like, if I, if anybody ever wanted to coach, and they wanted to say, "All right, I want a, I want a, a mentoring process," you could, you could look at my career, and that would be the blueprint. I mean, it's amazing that I was able to play under all these incredible coaches. And you know, you talk about uh, each of them had a very distinct personality. You talk about Jackson and Popovich. Uh, you know, arguably the two. Yeah. Among certainly among the top five coaches yeah. of all time, Nambi, what'd you learn from them? I learned perspective, um, life perspective. One of the things that happens when you become a professional athlete is it it consumes you, and it's one of the reasons you a lot of people make it. Um, it's all consuming, and if you're competitive and you're passionate about it, then you're going to attack it, and that's why you work so hard at it. That's why you make it. But then you're there, and you're consumed by it. And every little detail can bother you if you're self-conscious at all. And what I learned from those guys was, um, you know, take the game. You know, Phil had a – it was like a a Zen quote. It was something to the effect that, you know, treat treat your job every day as if the fate of the world depended on it, but know that – it really doesn't mean a whole lot in the grand mm-hmm. scheme of things, and I, I didn't, I didn't, I wasn't eloquent enough with this with that statement, but that was the point of of what he tried to do with us was uh, focus on what you're doing, um, attack it, work at it, but we're playing basketball, you know, right? It's it's this is a sport. This got to be fun, and Phil and Pop both had wonderful senses of humor. And so humor was a big part of their coaching styles. And Pop was uh, was so similar um, to Phil in his perspective, but totally different in his approach and the way he coached. Uh, but both of them made these huge impacts on me and on my coaching style and on my life. Um, and, and what really connected them, even though they're very different human beings, it was their interest in other things besides basketball. Phil, yeah, Phil right. had this fascination with Native American – history and spirituality and he incorporated that into his coaching uh pop has this great uh, fascination with politics and the military he was uh, he was in the air force and yeah. he was an intelligence officer yes. in the airport force for five years before he turned to basketball exactly and uh you know you go into pop's office um he's got cnn on uh, and I'm not just saying that because no, no, you work there. A man of <laughs> impeccable taste. <laughs> That's right. Uh, but meaning he doesn't have ESPN on. He's right. got he's got politics on. I have to tell you, just to interject, that the funny thing is when we were uh, when we would travel with the president and he was campaigning, he insisted that we not have any news on that. He always had ESPN yeah, on. Yeah, probably sure. for the same reason. Right. You want to get away from right. what consumes your life. Right. Um, but I, but that was a big thing for me to. to to start my coaching career, to have learned that perspective um, of, you know, how can, how can you teach your players that, man, this is important to play together as a team, to sacrifice, to work, and to try to win. But, man, this doesn't mean anything. You know, go home to your family and, and spend time with your family and take them out to dinner and enjoy your kids. And so that balance, can you find that balance? And that's what I try to do as a coach. Yeah. You, you, I remember from uh, those years that Phil used to, when you, you guys went off on your 
the, the, what they called the circus tour because yeah. the United Center was mm-hmm. uh, booked for the circus and you'd be gone for quite a long time. Usually the West Coast, he would give you all books yep. to read. Do you remember some of the books that he yeah. gave you? He tried to give people books um, based on their background. And he knew that I had gone to University of Arizona and I had a home in Tucson at the time. And so he gave me um, he gave me some Cormac McCarthy books, um, All the Pretty Horses he gave me, and he gave me some Tony Hillerman books. They were Southwest-based uh, novels, mysteries. and and uh, But he it was really great what he did. He kind of gave um, different books to different people based on what he thought. It's really interesting did. because – my, I mean, I have I've managed other things, not camp, uh, not uh, sports teams, but um, the ability to identify those things that are unique in people and appreciate mm-hmm. them seems like a really important quality in a coach. And choosing the appropriate book mm-hmm. for people certainly mm-hmm. reflects that. Now, did you read the books? Oh yeah, yeah. And did your teammates? Some of them. Uh, just depended. Um, some guys did. Some guys didn't. Um, I want to know what books Dennis Rodman was reading. Gosh, what, what did he? <laughs> what did Phil give him? Uh, I should remember this because I, I remember it was a topic. We were we were wondering the same thing. What's Phil going to give Dennis? I can't, <laughs> but I, I can't remember. But Phil never. You know, he didn't give us like book reports or anything. He yeah, just, he you just, know, if we read them, great. If not, it was a, his way of showing his compassion and his care for us and. It's what made him. It's what made Popovich uh, a great coach. Just the, it went way beyond anything about basketball. It was about about his compassion and care for you as a human being. Yeah, I remember I was in the, I was in the uh, pavilion. This was before you got to the Bulls. The first time they won a championship, and Mayor or somebody invited me to be there. And uh, the parade wasn't anything like the Cubs parade we yeah. just had in Chicago, yeah. but it was pretty wild and. Yeah. Fans were reaching for other players, and, and Phil stood by the door as each player came in to ask him if they were okay because he was worried that they were getting mm. manhandled wow. yeah. by the crowd. And it struck me that, that what a filial role yeah. He, uh, yeah. he was playing. You know, mentioning the Cubs, and then I, I want to move on and ask you about Michael Jordan and playing with mm-hmm. Michael Jordan. Uh, newly designated Medal of Freedom winner, I see. He's going to pick that up next week mm. from the president. But... Um, uh, the Cubs, as you know, a kind of epic drought, yeah. 108 years uh, between world championships. And Joe Madden is the uh, manager who came in the last two years. And, and when, it strikes me that he's a lot like the personalities mm-hmm. uh, that you're talking about. And he said, uh, someone told me he never talks about winning. And I asked him about that. He said, yeah, because winning, everybody wants to win. Mm-hmm. But when, if you think just about winning and losing, it just makes you tight. So I say fo- focus on process. Yeah. Do, do those things that you know you need to do, mm-hmm. and the, it'll either work or it won't right. work. Right. Uh, and, uh, that, and, and they – he had an extraordinarily young team that performed at a very high level, and they didn't seem to feel pressure. And I think it has a lot to do with the way he managed Agreed. Them. Agreed. I'm a huge Madden fan. I went and saw him this summer, this past summer in San Diego. That's where I live in the off season. And my son's a huge Cubs fan because he grew up in Chicago, and I'd take him to Wrigley all the time. So my son has been in heavy. He's 24 now, and and you know he this was, you know, it's the season for every Cubs fan, right? Yes. It's just a, an, an incredible, 
year. So he and I went and sat with Joe Madden. It's one of the benefits of my job. I have access to, you know, dugouts and locker rooms. Yeah. So I went and wanted to pick his brain. And, and um, it's one of the things that really attracted me to, to Joe is exactly what you talked about, the process over result um, and make the process interesting, right? He's got like pajama days. Yeah, they, right. They travel in onesies and, and he's a little nuts. He's a little crazy. <laughs> he is. And Phil was a little, a little crazy, you yeah. know, and um, in a good way. Uh, you, make it, you make it fun. You make it interesting. Take the pressure off. And, and maybe the best thing I learned that night uh, when I was in that locker room was I went across to the other locker room in the, the Padres and I met Andy Green, really young guy, uh, great, great guy. Um, I said, what um, – he asked me about Madden and uh, I said, yeah, it was really fun talking with him. He said, you know what I love about Madden? He plays music in the clubhouse, win or lose. Right. And he said most owners would walk into that locker room after a loss and hear music and go, why are they listening to music? They just lost. They should be angry. There's kind of this unwritten rule in sports that if you lose, you have to be despondent. Mournful, yes. Yes, mournful. And most managers, most coaches, uh, and I shouldn't say most, but a lot of them coach out of fear because yeah. it's an incredible job and it pays really well. And, but if you, you can lose it so quickly, people get fired you know, less than a year in if things don't go well. So a lot of coaches coach out of fear. Phil never did. Madden does not coach out of fear. He no. doesn't care if the owner walks in and they're playing music out of, after a loss because he knows it's good for the players, especially in baseball. A great team is going to lose 70 games, right? Yeah. They go 92 and 70 and win the division. Well, that's 70 times when you've lost. But Andy Green was marveling at the fact that Madden just didn't care about all these sort of norms and, and, uh, and uh, you know, sort of expected behavior. And so every day, as you said, was not about the results. It was about the process. Uh, they'd, they'd play music. They'd have fun. They'd joke around. They'd do these pajama parties on the road. He'd bring in um, like zoo animals to the clubhouse yeah. before again. Right. And, and he had a magician. They had a five-game losing streak, and he brought a magician into yeah. the clubhouse to entertain the team before the next game, which they won. Which they won. Phil used to burn incense in our locker room after a two-game losing streak. We've got to get the evil spirits out of the locker room. That stuff is great. It, it, you know, it just keeps it entertaining and loose, and, and it focuses on the process. And, and, and everybody, no matter what job they do, I think they're going to do better with it if they're enjoying the process. You know? Yeah. I, I want to ask you about Michael Jordan. I, 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 when I had Bill Walton on the podcast, I tried to get him to answer this question, but he, 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 he didn't really – I don't think he absorbed the question because it, it seemed so um, kind of – uh, hard to fathom to him I, because I said, how do people – all you guys in the NBA, all your, there's so many talented, physically talented people. It seems to me that the people who separate out in every sport are the people who react differently to pressure and who are able to elevate their game when the pressure ratchets up. Mm-hmm. Like Jordan always used to say, well, the game slows down mm-hmm. for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is it about – what is it about the really special players? And you've got some of them on your team, Curry yeah. and others. Yeah. What is it about really special athletes that allow them to um, to perform under yeah. pressure? Yeah, it's, uh, and and not not everybody does. And and um, I was a, a player um, who felt the pressure early in my career and tightened up. And then sort of figured it out later in my career and loosened up and realized you really do have to say, screw it, just, you know, 
go out and play and go for it and whatever happens, happens. But I was pretty self-conscious as a young player. Uh, some guys have never felt that way in their life. Steph Curry has never been self-conscious about a shot in his life. And it's a That's wonderful – That's apparent, by the way. Yes. And, and, and it's a wonderful quality and yeah. one that uh, you have to learn quickly as his coach because he's going to take some lousy shots. Yeah, but the, the percentages are on your side. Yeah, they are. And so you live with the lousy shots, understanding that it's part of who he is. It's part of what makes him – uh, who he is? He's fearless, um, and what what's great about that is that um, he, you know he doesn't worry about repercussions. You know, um, Michael never worried about what people were going to say after the fact. But there are a lot of players, um, like I said, myself included, early in my career, who were thinking about the repercussions and didn't want to be the goat and and didn't want to screw up for the team and for the fans. And and that's a, that's actually a conversation that. A fascinating conversation I had with Pete Carroll, Seahawks coach, about, and we we both are huge fans of the book, uh, The Inner Game of Tennis, which deals with this exact topic, your body and your mind. And that's what every athlete needs to do at the highest level is integrate your body and your mind so that you use the knowledge that your brain has with the natural instinct that your body has. It's a hard thing to make come together. Um, but there are some athletes like Steph who – just do it naturally. Michael just did it naturally, and it's hard to explain. I remember the the one game, playoff game, in the finals in Utah where he stole the ball from Carl Malone at the end of the game. And he talked about it afterwards, and he had thought it all through. He said, I know they're going to go to him. I can come up on the blind side. Uh, and it, it's, you know, uh, and I will tell you as a, a Bulls fan, I always – we always thought we had a chance to win when he was on yeah. the court because he would not let them let you guys lose. That yeah. he, he was so willful about winning, uh, about just just like dominating the game that that he would find a way. We knew we were going to win because of him. Because uh, you know, and and he wasn't always the easiest teammate. You know, he hard he, on people. He was hard on everybody. He made every practice hard. He talked trash to everybody. His theory was if you can't take the pressure from me in a practice, you're not going to be able to take the pressure of Game 7 of the NBA Finals. So it wasn't always fun, but every one of us knew how dominant he was and how good he was, and we we knew we were going to win every time out there, on the, you know, especially in the playoffs. We just knew it was the ultimate comfort level. Um, he was so dominant physically but also emotionally on the floor. I think t- I think teams and players all over the league were intimidated. Have you by- seen any player? I know LeBron uh, James was uh, obviously a big factor in what mm-hmm. happened like, but uh, with you guys last year. But is there any player uh, who uh, approaches Jordan in your I think uh, LeBron comes close uh, physically. Uh, there's this physical dominance with LeBron. That's just palpable on the floor. You can just you can feel his presence. Um, Kobe, skill wise, um, was similar. He'd hit these impossible shots. Um, and mindset wise, he was a pretty and mindset hard minded guy, ruthless. Um, and and from what I understand, similar teammate in terms of maybe it wasn't easy, but you had great faith in him. To me, Michael, sort of a combination of Michael of uh, Kobe and LeBron. He had the skill set and the physical dominance, and and um, you know he was undefeated in the finals. He never lost in the finals, six and zero. Oh. Um, but I, you know, I, I can't speak for the sixties and early seventies. No, I'm just talking about in your experience. Yeah, my experience. He's he's the greatest of all time. 
And now a word from our sponsors, and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. You were very outspoken after this last election and very passionate uh, about your concerns about uh, Donald Trump, the campaign he ran, what the implications are. Why did you decide to to speak out? Because I was asked. <laughs> you know, it's funny. I, I, get, uh, I get people all the time um, who say, well, you know, stick to sports, you know, um, why do you, you know, why? Not, not to my face, but I'll read it, you know, maybe on Twitter or whatever. People, you know, I'll just hear maybe my family will say, oh, yeah, so-and-so was saying you should stick to sports. But people ask us. So why shouldn't I, I answer, right? I have this forum. Um, it's uh, – if, if there's something important to speak on, then I think, I think we should speak on it. In this case, um, I felt it was important to address not the politics – um, of the election, but the nature of the uh, the cycle of the election cycle. Uh, it's the first time in my life that the election was not about policy, uh, or even um, um, uh, or even like personality. It was it was about anger. It was about fear, and I w- I was disgusted. I, I don't care what side of the political spectrum you're on. People vote for all kinds of reasons, right? Uh, you vote for your pocketbook. You vote for abortion rights or or gay marriage or you vote for certain social policies or maybe foreign policy. Maybe you're worried about this or that. And that's what it should be about. You should vote based on policy. But this election had nothing to do with policy. It had to do with hatred and fear. And, and we had a candidate who stirred that up. And I thought it was a horrible precedent for our country. You, uh, we had this discussion earlier about your experience as a kid. Um, there was an element of Islamophobia to that mm-hmm. appeal, the notion of banning Muslims and so on. How much did your, your upbringing, your experience inform your feelings about that? Because you seem very personally offended. Yeah, um, it, it definitely influenced me. Um, because I um, I did grow up in in the Middle East for many years and and made a lot of uh, friends in in Egypt and I've got lots of friends now American friends who are um, from Lebanon from anywhere in the Middle East I go to a, a wonderful uh, Middle Eastern restaurant in Portland every time we go there and uh, I've got these amazing friends who cook me my my Lebanese food and and we we hang out and they're Lebanese origin they're Americans. These are the people who Donald Trump is talking about uh, in terms of, um, you know, internment camps. Now, I, I shouldn't say that yet because uh, I don't know if Trump has actually mentioned it. But yeah, it's being it, talked about in the circles. But the only reason it's being talked about is because of the nature of of the political process that we've just been through. So it's personally offensive. Um, it goes against everything. Have you heard from some of your friends? Yeah, I, I have. Um, are they fearful? I think, I think people are genuinely fearful. Um, you know, and I've, and I heard immediately like within days of the election. Uh, and I think we all have heard stories of hate crimes, you know, um, you know, whether it's language or, or you know, acts of, of hatred, that it seems to me that have been sort of justified by 
this process we've been through. If if the president of the of the country can uh, can make remarks that are hateful and offensive, then it sort of rubber stamps it for a, a lot of people, and that's scary. Right, what about among the players that you lead? Is there um, has there been a reaction to the election? Yeah, we talked uh, the next day after the election as a team, and I remember I just. I just asked the players, how'd you feel? And Steph Curry said, weird. I feel weird. Um, I think that's how we all felt. It was weird. And as I said, I mean, you know, who cares about, you know, politics? It's decorum, right? It's, it's, um, It's a level of respect and dignity that should go along with this process that should set an example for everybody in this country. And there, there was none of that. And instead, we've sort of incited this, uh, this fear and this hatred, and it's and it's and it is scary because there's a lot of talk about what's what's next. Whether it's you know suppressing uh, freedom of speech with the media or or internment camps for Muslims, or I mean, it's, yeah. it's in fairness, that was a, a a guy who was in the Trump camp. He, as you point yeah, out, he yeah. hasn't he, he hasn't, hasn't said, said that. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, you mentioned that people say, well, stick to sports, don't talk. Right. Obviously, you're very fluent and thoughtful uh, on a lot of things, and you have experiences that inform your point of view. Um, but uh, I, I'm so what should the role of people in sports be, or celebrities generally, mm-hmm. in this discourse, and how much should people care? Yeah. Well, that's a good question, I, I, um, and that's um, that's a common topic these days. With uh, you know Colin Kaepernick um, kneeling mm-hmm. in the, during the anthem, and um, which you've been supportive of. Yeah, I supported him because it's uh, freedom of speech, and um, and he's uh, you know I, I think he he made his message more clear as he went um, as he went forward. He, he made clear that he wasn't trying to offend the military that he was talking about equal rights. And I think that's important to, if you're going to speak out, you should know something about, about mm-hmm. the issues. Um, but this is an interesting time we're living in. Everybody has a voice, you know, the same people who are telling me stick to sports. They're, they're tweeting, you know, their own political comments and they're, you know, uh, writing stuff on Facebook posts. And so we all have a voice now and which is kind of, uh, which is, you know, on the one hand, it's good. Everyone should have a voice, but it gets a little scary when, when everybody's, uh, got their own opinion. And sometimes these, sometimes people are, well, there's no filter. There's, there's no filter, and there's no fact checking. Yeah, and and that's I guess that's a whole different topic, but um, but it is an important one, and I think it's. But it one does speak to the fact that we're not we don't really have a unified discussion where we're discussing one set of facts about which you may have an opinion. Sure. If you if facts are sort of fungible, it kind of makes the whole thing. Yeah. Much more difficult. Facts took a beating in this election. It did, and it, because then it becomes propaganda, and that's where it gets scary when, when there's propaganda involved rather than facts and genuine discourse. Um, there's a bad historical preference or, or uh, precedent for that, um, obviously. So um, now you're coaching in uh, the Bay Area, yeah. so you're probably to the right of seventy percent of the people who come to your <laughs> That's right. games. But That's did right. you get blowback from uh, from what you said? I, I had sure I had lots of emails in my, my inbox, um, mostly positive, many negative, stick to sports or thank you for speaking out. Um, and um, again, people are 
interested in my opinion. I, I'm, I, I didn't offer this up. I was, I've been asked many times during press conferences about this stuff. So people are interested. And so I don't hesitate to speak. Um, and I'm, I'm not the authority on any of this, but uh, what I do feel strongly about is a level of respect that, sh- that has to exist between candidates, but also between people. I've got lots of I'm, – I'm, I'm a Democrat. I've got lots of friends who are Republicans. We have really great, healthy conversations. There's a respect level. Um, that's how it should be. Again, you know, people voting on policy, absolutely. But – but the nature, the tenor of this election was ugly and nasty, and it's scary in terms of what direction uh, that's going to take, um, especially because we, don't, we really don't know what Trump's presidency is going to look like because yeah. he didn't really spell it out other than um, possible deportation and you know, putting Hillary in jail, which <laughs> I'm pretty sure he's not going to do that. He said he would. Right. Um, the the uh, rolling back of the Health Care Act and a few other yeah, things. Yeah, yeah. So we don't You're right. Know. They, and, and I think that's part of the anxiety is yeah. the, for just, in, you know, we're beginning to see some appointments, but uh, that's a story still uh, still in the making. What's, uh, what's next for you? you how, how long do you see yourself? I don't want to create all kinds of jitters in the Bay Area here, mm. but I mean, do you see yourself. Uh, doing this work uh, for many, many years? Or do oh, you yeah, see yourself yeah. doing other stuff? No, I love, I love coaching. It's, uh, I feel like it's what I was meant to do. You know, I come from a, a family. You'd never coached before, was, before you got this no, gig? No, no. I, uh, I was in management with the Phoenix Suns for three years, but uh, I did a lot of TV. I did eight years of television yeah. commentary. And great at it. Thank you. Yeah. Um, it was great for me as a father and a husband to be able to be at home a lot more. Once my kids got to college age, that's when I decided to go into coaching um, because we were done raising our kids and I could go off and do do what I really wanted. And coaching has always been in the back of my mind. But I love it, and I'm incredibly blessed. I coach the, this group of guys. I, I've, you know, my very first job in coaching is with Steph Curry and Clay Thompson, Draymond Green, Andre Iguodala, and now Kevin Durant and. You know, working with Bob Myers and an incredible ownership group uh, for a, a team that has amazing fan base, sell out every game. So I'm, I haven't seen the dark side of the NBA as a coach. I've, and frankly, not really much as a player either. I've, I've lived this wonderful ride on, on these great teams. So, uh, but I love coaching and uh, it's uh, something I'd like to do for a long time. Well, you, uh, you bring a great voice to all of, all of this, not just sports, but I'm glad that you speak out, and uh, and you're right. I mean, the whole premise of this podcast is that we have to have more conversation and less right. uh, shaking fists across a jagged divide. So, That's right. Um, Can I mention one other thing? Yes. Along those lines, I read – I've been doing a lot of reading since the election, and I read – the best piece I read was a, a guy named David Wong on a website called Cracked, which I didn't know anything about, but somebody sent it to me. And it's if you're if you're listening to this, you should read it. It's uh, he's a guy who grew up in rural Illinois, and he basically explained why what happened just happened. Yes, he moved to the city, became a writer. Um, he said he became a Hillary uh, supporter, but he said growing up, if he hadn't left his town, he for sure would have voted for Trump. And he explained all the reasons why, and he made so much sense. And yes, it, and it explained the divide that yes. exists. In our country, and it made me realize, yeah, I'm 
I'm living a totally different no, life. No, this from is a so many huge, people. huge issue because we live and we have sorted ourselves in such yeah, a way yeah. that we don't hear each other. Right. And I, I happen to have a house in uh, rural Michigan, and my neighbors all had Trump signs yeah, on there yeah. in their front yards, not lawns, but yards. And uh, they. They're good people, good yes. neighbors, hardworking people, yeah. wonderful people, but they feel like they've been discarded. They, they have. feel like they've been uh, they've been uh, uh, dismissed and and, and, and disrespected. Disrespected, and then the other thing is that they feel as though the establishment uh, has just uh, sort of changed everything, and the establishment in this particular election was represented by the Democrats and mm-hmm. by Hillary. Um, and, and, and Trump, Trump exploited Trump that exploited in, in incredibly and, uh, in, in clever and diabolical in some ways. Yes, but, right? but, he, but he's right. In fact, you know, I thought the most poignant moment of the election was when he admitted that he hadn't paid his taxes because there's a loophole. He said, of course I didn't pay my taxes. There's a loophole that I used. Right. I thought that was so important because what really matters is not whether Hillary's in office or whether Trump's in office. What matters is can we actually fix the, the system? Can we get rid of campaign financing? Can we get rid of you know tax loopholes for corporations? Can we actually do something to generate jobs in this country? Um, and I don't know if the answer is yes. That's what's scary. I think we may be so far down that path that can we actually – because the history of the world is that the people who have money influence the politics. Well, I think beyond that, uh, we live in these revolutionary times when technology is repl- – right. you can't replace uh, a, an NBA player with a machine. Yeah. But – there are a lot of jobs that can be replaced and are being replaced, and that's only going to accelerate, and more and more people are going to find themselves in the position of having had a good job and not being able to find something to replace it. This is the biggest challenge yeah, that I we agree. face, and we got to – if we don't address it in a serious way – uh, and, and and frankly, we, this campaign should have been all about that. Yeah, it should have. But it, it makes no difference, though, who's in office when it comes to techn- technological advancement. I mean, it's only a matter of time before automatic cars and trucks. Yes. Are in. So what happens to the trucking industry? Exactly. Right? And I don't know how many tens of thousands of jobs are in the trucking industry. Three million people dr- drive for a living wow. in this country. All right. So so, so it, what is, happens to them in this? Economy? What happens to them? And does it matter who wins the presidential election? Because you can't suppress what does invention. matter is do we have a strategy? Do we think is is it front and center to say where are these people going yeah, in our where economy? Are they How work? do we create opportunity yeah. for them? Because as you know, it's not just a matter of a paycheck. It's because we can give people money. Right. It's, it's a matter of dignity, yes. self worth, how people define That's themselves. Right. So right. these are big weighty issues. And if we don't get it right, then this kind of uh, right wing populism is going to take root. It. Trump won. You see it in Europe. Yeah, that's right. uh, And we'll see more of it. So there are a lot of scary, a a lot of issues uh, to. uh, So maybe you should run for president. (laughs) Greg Popovich for president. I I would vote for him. I really would. (laughs) Steve Kerr, great to be with you. Thank Thanks, Steve. Thank you for listening to the Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of The Axe Files is Emily Stanitz. The show is also produced by Miriam Annenberg, Samantha Neal, and Allison Siegel. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Courtney Coop, Megan Marcus, and Ashley Lusk. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu.